2: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Marisa Lagos and for Mina Kim. State lawmakers were up until the early morning hours Thursday, completing votes on the last bills of the legislative session, a plan to keep the Diablo Canyon nuclear plant open and a suite of measures to combat climate change, abortion access expansion, an affordable housing deal. They're among the hundreds of bills headed to Governor Gavin Newsom, who has until September 30th to sign or veto them. We'll talk with political reporters about what passed, what failed, and what's ahead. That's next, after this news. This is Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos, and today for Mina Kim... Hundreds of bills are now awaiting Governor Gavin Newsom's signature or veto after the 2022 legislative session ended early Thursday morning. This hour, we'll take a look at what's on his desk, from climate initiatives to new protections for fast food workers to online safety rules for kids. And we want to hear from you. What are your thoughts on what lawmakers did or didn't do this legislative session? Here's who's joining us this hour, Guy Marzorati. He's reporter and producer for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk. Hey, Guy. Hey Marisa. Alexi Kossef, who's reporter at CalMatters. Hey Alexi. Hey there. And Lara Corti. She's state politics reporter, politico co-author of the California Playbook. Hey Lara. I'm Marisa. So happy to have this panel. Uh, I think all of you stayed up later than I did on Wednesday night watching this. Um, And we want to know from listeners, what questions do you have for our panel uh, about Diablo Canyon, which we're about to talk about in a second, about the abortion package that passed this uh, year, or any of the other bills that have landed on the governor's desk? I can't promise we're experts on all of them, but we can try. Uh, You can email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Um, and give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Uh, we're going to jump in here. Um, and I wanted to start today with the bills that are grabbing headlines. Uh, first, this suite of emergency climate-related measures that the governor was pushing for. Five of the six of them passed. And I want to get deeper into Diablo Canyon specifically. But Alexi, to start, can you kind of give us a broad overview of what this package was and what Why it came so late in the session. He only introduced this a couple of weeks ago.
3: That's right. Um, This was a package that was pushed by Governor Gavin Newsom. And it was only about a month ago where he came out and told lawmakers, hey, look, I want you to do something more. And a few weeks after that, where he even introduced the specifics of what he wanted that to be. And this package, it really brings together a lot of Uh, proposals that lawmakers had tried to pass in previous years and had been unsuccessful. Things like greater oil setbacks for oil wells near schools and homes, or uh, trying to put into law this goal of making California carbon neutral by 2045, um, or trying to increase the, the Um, carbon emissions reduction goals that California has which ended up being the one bill that as you mentioned did not pass but um, you know Gavin Newsom was really putting his weight behind trying to get the legislature to take action on these things where there's been these very high political hurdles to actually getting success in the past
2: yeah It's almost like in August, both Washington and Sacramento woke up and said, let's do something about climate. I mean, Laura, any sense, as Alexi said, these are not new ideas. And obviously, the urgency of wildfires and climate change is not new either. Do you have any sense politically, like why Newsom waited till the end of session?
4: You know, it's a good question. And I think that, you know, we can say like, oh, he woke up and was like, wow, it's really hot outside. I wonder what the problem is. (laughs) Um, No, I don't think that's the case at all. You know, Gavin Newsom and Democrats have been talking about the need to combat climate change for a long time. I mean, you could uh, get kind of cynical and speculate, you know, it's an election year. Gavin Newsom is obviously trying to raise his national political profile. You have congressional Democrats taking these big swings on climate legislation. You know, so Mm -hmm. I could I could see a situation where uh, California or Newsom wanted California to kind of step up as well. But I mean, there is also just the reality that uh because the heat waves are really exacerbating the electrical grid, we have plans to phase out gas powered plants in the coming year. We had a plan to phase out the Diablo Canyon nuclear plant uh, by two thousand twenty five um, and these clean energy projects to replace that power have just not been coming online fast enough, so I think the the rubber kind of hit the road this year and they said, we need to do something or else we're going to have some some power outages. Mm-hmm. And that can be really politically bad for for Newsom and, and any lawmaker.
2: Well, that's a great segue I mean, into what is really the the most controversial and, and <laughs> talked about part of this package, which is the proposal to extend the life of the Diablo Canyon nuclear plant. This is on the Central Coast and it was scheduled to shutter in 2025. Uh, Newsom, you know, this I think it's about nine percent of our state's energy comes from this plant, which needs a lot of maintenance work. And uh Newsom essentially offered this proposal to loan PG and E one point four billion dollars to keep it open until twenty forty five. That's a forgivable loan, however. So I guess how we how we talk about it is interesting. Uh it passed both the assembly and senate on a more than two-thirds vote. So this was bipartisan, but there was pushback uh from both environmentalists and some Republicans. So I want to play a couple cuts. First is Senator uh, Bill Dodd, who was a Democrat representing Napa, which was obviously hit in the past by a lot of those shutdowns with electric uh, electrical shutdowns. Uh, he's the one who introduced SB 846 and co-authored it. Uh, here he is.
5: Members, Diablo Canyon supplies approximately 17 percent of California's zero carbon electricity and more than eight percent of the state's total electricity. California's current clean energy generation and storage system is not yet able to adequately backfill the energy production uh, from Diablo Canyon Power Plant. Scrambling to buy costly and dirty out of state power isn't the answer and will hammer ratepayers and worsen climate change. This bill is necessary. Blackouts are a real threat and pose economic. Health and safety risk, especially for the most vulnerable Californians. In a heat wave that requires high energy demand for cooling, losing power can quite literally cost lives.
2: So that was the pro side. I want to also play a cut from State Senator Brian Dolly. He's a Republican representing Bieber, and he is running against Gavin Newsom uh, this fall for governor. And this is what he had to say during the debate over SB 846.
0: I'm not going to bail the governor out. We have time two years before that plant shuts down. But here we are at 1 o'clock in the morning on the last night of session after we just got his whole climate plan with no plan put out. And you're going to bail him out. And you're going to make Californians suffer as higher rates. as And, oh, I, oh yeah, oh, by the way, PG&E investors aren't going to get any benefit from it. B.S., they get 15% of all electricity that goes through there. When they cut a tree down, they charge 15%. So make no mistake, Californian ratepayers are going to pay, and you're gonna bail them out. And you're gonna give the governor a pass because he wanted to shut this thing down in 2016 and talk about how he's saving the climate when we're not saving the climate.
2: All right. So a lot there. And Alexi, we could spend an hour on pg I could definitely, but we won't. Um, but I mean, what do you make of that critique? From The broader critique I feel like we heard was actually from environmentalists who are pushing back against the idea that, you know, nuclear power is the best sort of path forward um, because of obviously the safety concerns and the storage concerns and all of that. But what did you kind of make of this debate?
3: Well, it was a really interesting one because, as you mentioned, it was this very overwhelming vote in both houses. But in the assembly, you had Republicans actually standing up and speaking in favor of doing this. And in, in the Senate, there was a lot of anger, like what you heard just there with Senator Dolly. And um, I think one thing that was really hanging over all of the debate and that kept coming up was Gray Davis and and his mm-hmm. name. And, you know, just the, the idea that Gavin Newsom could be another Gray Davis if he doesn't take action to try and stabilize the grid in some capacity. And and so I just think that was like the undercurrent for all of this. You know, it, it's, you know, regardless of how you feel about the policy of it, there is, you know, real political considerations here that there's a a danger here for Gavin Newsom and his reputation and his career if if he can't get the situation under control, but also that that's a very potent attack upon him. and And that was informing a lot of the way that it was talked about in the legislature as well. I mean, we we must obviously mention that Senator Dolly is running against Gavin Newsom for governor and, and he stood up on that floor and spoke for, you know, over 10 minutes. And it really sounded at times like kind of a campaign speech. So all of this is shocking really in the legislature. <laughs> yeah, but all of this is really wrapped up in politics um as well as policy. And, and that's I think something that's worth pointing yeah. out.
2: Uh, just a few minutes to our break, but Guy Marzorati, KQD politics reporter. Uh, what do you think when, you know, we've talked a lot over the years about the real might of the oil and fossil fuel industry in Sacramento? Um, and, you know, they obviously this is something PG&E wanted. A lot of the other bills were opposed uh, by oil and business uh, in terms of, you know, I- increasing goals and, and speeding them up. On the other hand, the oil industry killed some bills that we've been following here at KQED around uh, expanding penalties for pollution. Uh, where do you think things stand in Sacramento just like sort of politically when we think about the fossil fuel industry?
6: Well, I think it shows that these state legislative elections matter, right? The margins that Democrats have built in the Senate and Assembly, 60 60- Uh, Votes in the assembly, 31 Democratic senators. There's just far more of a cushion for Democrats on these votes, even than five years ago. I mean, when Jerry Brown was taking his environmental package to the floor with 53 Democrats in the assembly. So I think for the oil and gas industry, look, the, the Democratic caucus, they don't need to go across the aisle to lawmakers who might be more friendly to the oil and gas industry. In fact, they don't even need to go to some of the more vulnerable members or moderate members in their own caucus. You saw Rudy Salas and Adam Gray sit out a lot of these votes. I think that kind of really shows... Uh, the point where the legislature is at with these issues.
2: Well, and Laura, I mean, Guy brings up two members who are locked in tight congressional races in, you know, more rural conservative districts. And presumably that would be a win for Democrats if they went to Congress, even if they're not supporting this type of legislation in California. Right.
4: So I think we can all understand that uh, there is a certain uh overarching maybe obligation for Democrats, or the overarching goal is to have more Democrats in Congress, especially in such a tricky year uh, in the midterms, looking like Democrats could really get a a slaughtering this November. Um, I mean, also uh, pointing out that I, I think it's tricky for them to make these votes on the floor because Like, the reality is, I think we forget about this, that, uh, you know, jobs, uh, oil jobs are good paying jobs, Mm -hmm. uh, and it's really hard for those lawmakers to vote against them in their districts. But, um, you know, that could take a totally different tone if they go to Congress.
2: And if... We
4: actually create more green
2: energy jobs. Um, all right. We are talking with a all-star cast of reporters here this morning, and we want to know what questions you have for our panel about the bills on the governor's desk. Next, we're going to talk about the abortion package. Uh, so email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can give us a call. We're at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. I'm Marisa Lagos, in today for Mina Kim, and we're talking legislation. We'll be right back.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
2: Welcome back to Forum. I am Marisa Lagos, here today for Mina Kim, and we are talking about the hundreds of bills sitting on Governor Gavin Newsom's desk and a couple of the ones that didn't make it there. We have with us Guy Marzarati, reporter and producer for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk, Alexi Kossif, reporter at CalMatters, and Lara Corti. She co-authors Politico's California Playbook. And Lara, I want to start with you here um, as we mentioned, there was a big abortion package, of course, coming because of the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade. Tell us what lawmakers are sending to the governor. Um, it's, the state has really positioned itself to become an abortion sanctuary in the wake of the Dobbs decision.
4: Yeah. I mean, like you said, um, they really want to make California um, a safe haven in the country for abortion. That's a big deal for Gavin Newsom and for Democrats. Um, So the budget this year actually outlines $60 million um, to help uh, protect abortion access in California. And that's, you know, it was very important to lawmakers to get something that both helps people in California and helps people um, from out of state. Uh, The, you know, the, assumptions that people are going to need to be leaving these red states to access abortion somewhere else. So um, there was Senate Bill 1142 by Senators Ana Caballero and um, Nancy Skinner, which essentially creates a fund that helps cover the cost of travel, of lodging, of childcare um, for people who need to access abortion. That's often a big barrier, not just the legality of something, but all the logistics, right? Um, and then legislatures, legislators also Um, put $40 million there um, to help uh, cover the cost of abortions for uh, low-income people. Like we said, you know, the the money part of this is often a big Mm -hmm. barrier. Um, You also have bills that protect people from prosecution. Um, Buffy Wicks had a bill that protects um, pregnant people from, uh, you know, prosecution if they get an abortion or if there's a stillbirth, that created some controversy, of course, amongst anti-abortion groups. Um, But a lot of this is just making sure that the the laws in other states um, that seek to prosecute abortions or people who perform abortions um, don't apply here in California. It's a big package of bills. I think there was uh, 14 that were backed by um, by abortion advocates. And um, I I suspect Gavin Newsom will sign them. I think you'd be hard to, to find a reason he wouldn't.
2: Yeah. I mean, Geimer's already California is already a pretty has pretty strong abortion protections. Uh, voters will be weighing in on whether to enshrine those in the state constitution this fall. What's your sense on like what the argument was? Is it because there is not equal access across the state? Is it was it more about kind of protecting out of state residents? Like what what's the political argument here?
6: Yeah, I mean, I think all that and I would say for the political argument, this is a great issue for Democrats in this midterm election year. And I think that's why you're seeing so much emphasis on Prop 1, getting that on the ballot, putting that before voters. Really making that an issue. I mean, stepping outside of the legislature, making that an issue in a lot of the competitive congressional districts uh, up and down the state. Obviously, California has robust uh, abortion rights laws on the books right now, but something like a constitutional amendment would not only enshrine that but also just make that part of you know the electoral conversation between now and November.
2: Alexi, what are your thoughts here? Like, is this more political positioning, or are there you know, substantive things here that are going to help people seeking abortions or protect them? Because, I mean, it it occurs to me some of this, um, you know, the idea of protecting folks who come from out of state will only work if they stay here in California, right? Like we don't have the ability to legally protect someone if they go back to Texas or
3: Missouri. That's true. But when you look at you know the full scope of this legislation. I mean, it was something like 15 bills that they ended up passing. And as a whole, it could make a substantial difference. The money that Laura mentioned is a huge deal because it could pay the way for people to come from out of state if they can't afford to travel. Um, it's going to reimburse clinics to provide care for people who don't have health insurance and and couldn't afford it on their own things like that that could potentially make it more accessible for people and for some of these other kinds of laws you know yes you can't stop a prosecutor in Texas for you know from from taking that case on but if you tell law enforcement if you tell you know tech companies and health providers in California that you cannot participate with that case you cannot provide them any information then you're trying to put wedges you know, and and roadblocks in in the way of that kind of activity. And that could, again, help provide protections that people need to feel more comfortable either coming to the state to get an abortion or for doctors here in California to, you know, provide services to those people, knowing there are some legal risks elsewhere in the country. Yeah.
2: Laura, do you I mean, were these party line votes? What was their pushback? um, And did any of it come from Democrats?
4: Um, I think the Democrats were mostly on the same page here. You had the normal um, uh, pushback from Republicans, from anti-abortion groups. Um, there was actually a big demonstration on one of these uh, bills that would have um, you know, prevented people who have miscarriages or stillbirths from being prosecuted. And you had um, a big push from anti-abortion activists saying that it basically legalized sent infanticide, which, you know, supporters say it's absolutely untrue. Um, But I think this is one of the issues this year that Democrats are really rallying behind. It's not that they don't rally behind it in normal years, but this is going to be definitely a big issue at the ballot box in November. I mean, Prop 1 has the potential to really turn out voters. Um, I think you're going to see people leaning on this issue uh, to try and, uh, get voters motivated this year. I mean, it's, yeah. uh, not to be politically cynical, but that's a, that's a big get for Democrats to have such an issue to to harp on and to, to point out to voters.
2: Yeah. And I think it's worth noting that it's certainly not, um, like looking at the most recent polling on prop one, only 49% of, re- of Republicans were against it and there was a big chunk undecided. So I think like, I'll be watching that as just like, how does this play out more broadly in the political sphere? Cause I don't think it's always as partisan of an issue. Um, in a state like California. Before we move on to housing, I do want to take a call from one of our listeners. Carrie in San Jose has a Diablo Canyon
8: question or comment. Carrie, go ahead. Hi, thank you. Um, I was told by a former legislative staffer that there's a hidden rooftop solar tax in the Diablo Canyon bill, and I was wondering if your guests know about that and um, if it applies to institutional players like schools as well as it does to residents who put solar on their roof.
2: Anybody know? Um, I actually have I, a I bill in I front know. of me. Yeah. Do you yeah. Know?
3: I think I know what you're referring to. Um, I, I can't get into all the details, but there, there were some concerns raised at the last minute by rooftop solar advocates that the way the language is written about how you calculate energy usage would mean that, um, People who have rooftop solar are getting would get charged um, in a different way, but the governor's office did come out and clarify that that was not the intent of the language, and, and they were going to put something in writing to, you know, state that that was the intent. You know, that was not the intent of the law. So, you know, I don't, I don't know how that plays out legally, but you know, the governor's office was trying to clarify that you know, they, mm-hmm. they, they weren't trying to change anything there with respect to rooftop solar and and that yeah the bill shouldn't shouldn't be Creating any more costs in that way.
2: All right, Carrie, great question. Thanks for for that call. And, you know, we do still want to hear from listeners. If you have questions about the bills that have landed on the governor's desk or comments about what you hope he signs or vetoes uh, or anything that failed you're disappointed about, give us a call at 866 733 6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I have with us today Guy Marzorati from KQED. Alexi Kossif at CalMatters, and Lara Corti from Politico. And Alexi, let's talk about uh, affordable housing. There was a pair of bills to expand it that really looks at commercial real estate, which is something I know we've been talking about a lot as a potential for affordable housing development. Um, and it's also had a lot of complicated, like, union politics and affordable okay. housing advocate politics. So explain what the heck happened.
3: This has been just an issue in the legislature for a long, long time. Um, This sort of battle between a desire to make housing easier to build uh, because California is in such a housing crisis. And then also all these other factors at play, particularly, you know, what kind of protections do you put in place for the workers who build that housing? And they've never really been able to come to an agreement about how you balance the affordability of building housing with making sure that you know workers can have a living wage and benefits and all those kinds of things and they didn't quite reach a grand bargain this year but what they did end up doing was very interesting where there's two similar bills that have slightly different um slightly different approaches one puts a little bit more worker protections in and one puts a little bit more housing affordability requirements in, but both have to do with making it easier to turn commercial properties into housing. And then they basically said, we're never going to reach a full agreement. Let's pass both and then kind of let the market decide. Mm -hmm. And developers can decide what's going to be more financially beneficial or easier for them to use. Is it going to be building more affordable housing in their projects or is it going to be paying workers? A little bit more money
2: well uh, what do we th- like is this realistic that this will actually lead to empty commercial properties being redeveloped into housing alexi like wh- what are developers saying
3: i mean developers were actually you know pushing for this kind of legislation because one of the things that it can do is remove some of the environmental reviews and and fast track some of those legal steps that can hold a project up for a long period of time. So, mm-hmm. I don't think any one of these um, you know, laws that has passed the legislature in the past years or this year related to housing is going to completely solve, you know, the housing crisis in California, but what what both of these two bills will do is unlock a lot of potential new locations for housing, you know, mm-hmm. it's really targeted at things like abandoned strip malls and parking lots that are underused and and things like that, where, you know, maybe you've got a hollowed out commercial corridor, and now potentially developers could come in and try and convert that to housing in a much more streamlined, quicker process that could save them some on on the costs and the time and um, make that project pencil out a little bit better for them.
2: Well, guy, I mean, we know that NIMBYism is often the biggest challenge, and I know there's also a constitutional amendment uh, that lawmakers are putting on the 2024 ballot to repeal a requirement that publicly funded affordable housing projects receive a vote by voters. Um, I mean, what do you think? Are, are are This is all incremental, obviously, but taken sort of largely with all the changes we've seen in recent years, is California finally starting to tackle this issue?
6: I mean, I think, look, I think you can look at the reaction of local governments and See the answer is yes. You you know you see that the the way in which the state is taking on a greater and greater role throughout the years, um, I think is making a difference. I'll point to these two uh, bills about commercial properties. You look around the Bay Area at there are a lot of places where I think this is you know ripe for ripe for change along El Camino Real here in the South Bay, where you have kind of uh, block after block of half half empty abandoned strip malls. And then right next to them, newer housing developments coming in. So mm-hmm. clearly like a, a demand for new housing and kind of a decline of some of these commercial corridors down here. And I think that's kind of the areas that lawmakers are targeting uh, with this these bills. Obviously, the question of whether this entices developers enough if they have to either make it 100 percent affordable or, you know, seek out skilled labor. I think that's, you know, we'll, we'll have to find out.
2: Absolutely. Well, we do have a caller who wants to weigh in on this.
6: Ryan is
2: calling in from Napa. Ryan, go ahead.
8: Hi, I'm calling in because I'm really excited about these bills passing. I don't know the outcome, kind of like you're discussing. Is it going to pencil and is it the, the labor requirements or the affordability
6: requirements? But I'm just excited that we're we're doing something mm-hmm. and we're making it legal to build housing in a way that's like livable and, and hopefully will create... Really rich communities where we can where we can house all the people that that were already living here.
8: Um, so yeah, uh, thanks.
2: Awesome, thanks for calling, Ryan. Um, before we move on to another topic, I do want to return briefly to abortion. Nancy from San Jose has a question for our panel. I believe, uh, Nancy, go ahead.
1: Hi. Um, recently, there was a column in the editorial section of the Mercury News where, where someone was arguing that. Prop one was b- badly written and would leave huge gaping holes for lawsuits about all kinds of things, hmm. and urging people not to vote for it for that reason.
2: All right. Do you have you heard anything about that? Yeah, that's a great question, Nancy. Thanks for for it. Um, I don't know. Laura, do you have you I know that this was a debate earlier in the session as to sort of. Yeah, I mean, uh, I I could probably
3: take that one if you want. I I think I know what she's talking about. Um, The opponents of Proposition 1 have argued that the language is too vague and that it's written in a way that would essentially override Um, all kind of uh, restrictions on abortion in California and allow for sort of late-term abortions in the third term of pregnancy after a fetus is viable, which is currently mostly not allowed in California. Um, The the supporters say that's not the case, that's not the intent, but um, I would expect that if this passes, that anti-abortion advocates will probably sue regardless and make that play out in the courts. And it will ultimately be up to the California Supreme Court to decide how yeah. that language um, works.
2: So. I would encourage folks to like read it because it's one of the few ballot measures that's like, I don't know, two sentences, Laura?
3: <laughs> yeah, it's pretty plain language. <laughs>
4: Yeah, that's one of the, that's, I think, exactly right, Alexi, that's one of the issues that people raised is that it doesn't um, specifically, so California's current law is that um, without, I I believe there's a certain point where you can have an abortion without question, and then after that, it's um, up to the point of fetal viability, um, which is, uh, you know, up to the discretion of physicians. And I believe I'd have to read the prop measure again, but it doesn't say anything about fetal viability. And that was the issue that opponents raised of like, well, is this just going to allow abortions at any time, you know, at at 39 weeks, Mm. at 40 weeks. Um, And I mean, I will leave it up to the, the legal scholars to discuss that. I think that's the issue that people were were bringing up. But, yeah, it's very it's very short.
2: It's very short. And it says it enshrines both reproductive access and abortion specifically in the Constitution. Um, so I would like to take another caller. Uh, Bianca in Pengrove has a comment. Bianca, go ahead.
1: Hi, there. Thanks so much for taking my call. Um, I just wanted to uh, leave a brief comment that, you know, among these discussions for women's access to health care and support for um, working families in California, um, just wanted to elevate the issue of SB 951 by Senator Durazzo, which will increase the wage replacement rates for uh, low-wage workers who are currently participating in California's paid family leave program, Um, to be reimbursed at 90 percent of their wages as opposed to the current 60 to 70 percent. I mean, (laughs) I certainly can't take a 40 percent pay cut here in California. And I uh, imagine that for folks who uh, make less income than that, that they certainly can't do that. This was a bill that was Um, uh, put up last year. It was vetoed by Governor Newsom so as not to unduly burden workers or small businesses. Um, That bill uh, has now included a pay for um, and uh, has support from business organizations, small business owners, big businesses. Chambers of Commerce, including the California, Asian, Pacific Chamber, advocates, workers, and working families uh, to simply um, reform California's paid family leave program finally um, to allow more folks to be able to actually use California's paid family leave program.
2: Well, thanks for calling, Bianca. And, yeah, I I think the details of that bill is that it will... Tax higher earners who either had been a cutoff for when you had to sort of stop paying those taxes, and that will uh, no longer be there. We are talking about the 2022 legislative session, the bills that passed and failed, and what we might expect from Governor Gavin Newsom, who has until the end of the month to approve or nix them. We're here with Guy Marzirati from KQED, Alexi Kossif from CalMatters, and Lara Corti from Politico. Give us a call at 866 733 6786 if you have questions for our pay- panel or comments about what the legislature has been up to you can also get in touch on twitter and facebook at kqed forum or email us forum at kqed.org we'll be back to talk about kids privacy and fast food workers and some other stuff in just a moment
0: support for forum comes from san francisco opera
2: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos in today for Mina Kim, and we've got a few more meaty topics to get through before the end of this discussion about the 2022 legislative session. Um, I want to talk first about a online safety bill for children. This passed the Senate on Monday, 33 to 0, which is a pretty big margin. And um, Alexi, this is something that there was some pushback to. Uh, what Tell us what this bill actually lays out.
3: So, uh, yeah, in the past couple of sessions, especially lawmakers have been trying to push back more against tech companies and and provide more safeguards for things like data privacy and, you know, how your information is used online. And this one specifically has to deal with kids under the age of 18, trying to ensure that there are... Um, you know more safeguards online for how their personal information is is kept by companies, maintained by companies, and also to ensure that it's not, you know, sold and and you know to advertisers and others who might want to use it. So obviously um there was a lot of pushback from the tech world, especially because early versions of the bill had created a private right of action, which would have given anybody in the state, the ability to sue over violations of that. And um, provisions like that were ultimately stripped out to uh, make it, you know, to help it get through the legislature. Hmm. Um, But definitely, you know, one of those eternal battles over personal privacy rights versus sort of the business interests of, of how the Internet works in this day and age. Absolutely. And I
2: imagine also questions of what broader impacts this could have, given that Congress has yet to sort of take this up in any meaningful way. We do have a caller who's been waiting very patiently, Jonah in San Francisco. Uh, go ahead, Jonah.
5: Hi. Yes. Um, I heard at least uh, from some tech law there was a huge like, raising red flags that this bill would require sites to verify the age of users and like could require facial recognition of users over 18 for accessing poorly defined adult content and like is did that get stripped out or did this just pass unanimously uh, even with those provisions in there
2: a uh, great question alexi lara who does anyone want to take that
3: Um, I can't speak to specifically the question of things like facial recognition. I I hadn't heard that. So I apologize. I don't know if that, um, you know, is just sort of something that was raised as a possibility. I don't think that was specifically in the bill. I know that overall the bill was quite scaled back mostly on kind of what sort of legal action people can take to enforce the law. That was really sort of restricted to place it within um, the context of the Attorney General's office because uh, the Department of Justice in the state is responsible for already lots of laws that have to do with enforcing Californians' digital privacy rights. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think a lot of the debate that was happening was uh, in the legislature was more around enforcement. And yeah, I think I know I what Jonah's I talking
2: about. I, I, what I saw was concerns by you know EFF and ACLU that essentially by you know putting more requirements on age verification that it could require everybody to say have a facial scan or other. But I don't think I think that was more a concern about the potential fallout from the bill, not that it was a specific sort of provision in it. So I think a lot of this will be left up to how the state actually implements it. And I and I will say, uh, Jonah, I know that this was um, pretty heavily based on what the UK has done around this. So we do have some sort of a, a framework for what this looks like. Um, I hope that answers your question. All right. I also want to talk about fast food workers. But before that, uh, Cheyenne in Hayward has a response to our earlier call about paid family leave. Cheyenne, go
8: ahead. Hi. Um, so I I heard what uh, Bianca called in and, and mentioned that um, PFL was uh, wanting or potentially wanting to pay out 90%. Um, and I, I've had two babies in the past two years and was on PFL both times. And I was really worried about what that 60% was going to look like. But the thing I found out is that that 60% is pre-tax. And so what actually happens is the check that comes is really close to what you usually see on a paycheck already. Um, It was only short by a hair. And so I'm concerned because if they're going to pay 90 percent of your pre-tax check, you may end up getting more initially, Mm. but you will also be paying a lot of taxes on that because you do pay taxes on your PFL. Uh, So I'm just that's kind of concerning. I wanted to bring that up and, and also, you know, who benefits from that? Yeah. Thanks, Shan. I mean, I
2: do know that this is for the lowest wage workers. And to your point, you do pay taxes later. So it probably is a little less than 60%. But great question. And uh, I don't know if anyone on our panel wants to jump in on that. No? Okay. We will move on now. Um, Laura, I want to talk about AB 257. This is a big priority for labor, um, not just in California, but nationally. And it would potentially benefit the state's more than half a million fast food workers. What does this bill lay out um, and, and what are you kind of seeing in terms of the debate?
4: Yeah, so this bill was one of the more contentious ones this year. Like you said, it's backed by labor. Um, essentially, what it would do is establish a council of people in the state that would set working conditions and wages for fast food workers. Um, And obviously that's a, that's a huge population. I mean, like drive down the highway, any fast food restaurant, um, you know, would be subject to this. Um, And the backers say that, you know, working conditions are, are, bad among fast food workers they need more protections they need more insurance that they're going to have livable wages that kind of thing um and you know to no surprise the restaurant industry really opposes this bill they say essentially what it's going to do is raise prices on food it's going to raise prices on operations it's going to hurt um you know franchisees who they you know say are like small business owners people who own one or two franchises Um, and mcdonald's came out against this today there was a, a a quote from an executive saying, you know, this is going to hurt everybody. Um, and we'll have to see if if Gavin Newsom is going to sign this one. Um, he hasn't taken a public position on the bill. He himself is a restaurant owner um, through, through Plump Jack, which owns a number of, of wineries and, and restaurants. Um, so I, I could see him, you know, looking at the, the business side of this. Um, the industry said this is really going to hurt them. But uh, I mean, it has the backing of labor, which is hugely powerful in California, as we know. Um, So I think uh, whichever way he goes is going to definitely ruffle some feathers.
2: Yeah. And this was narrowed from a previous proposal uh, made in previous years by now labor leader, former Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez. Laura, do you know, like, how did that what compromises did proponents make to get this over the finish line?
4: Um, I, uh, that's, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> maybe you could speak to that more. Okay.
2: Yeah, no, I, I think that they, um, well... I'll have to pull up the details. I thought I thought you would report on that. But I guess more broadly, Geimer's already, can you talk about like what this says to us about kind of the labor movement in California? And I don't know, just this bigger push we're seeing for unionization at places like Starbucks and Amazon that have previously not had that. It does feel like after kind of years of pushback that there is more power on workers' side.
6: Yeah, I think the historical backdrop to this is that it has been very difficult for unions to organize fast food workers. In fact, you saw years ago SEIU, other unions pushing for minimum minimum wage hikes for everyone, but really framing the campaign around fast food workers, even though those workers were not SEIU members. It was kind of like a, a lifting all boats. This would basically set up this, you know, statewide sector where you have sectoral bargaining, a council that's able to set these rules rather than having to organize fast food workers at each specific uh, franchise. The There were some late amendments. A big one was requiring that 10,000 fast food workers actually sign a petition to make this whole process start. Mm-hmm. So the council won't be able to start until they get those signatures. Um, but it's kind of incredible that this was able to survive, despite a t- huge onslaught of ads uh, in the last few weeks against this bill. You had TV ads running from restaurant groups. You had, you know, custom online ads against specific California senators. Like wherever you logged in from your computer, you'd have your local senator an ad saying call them and, and vote against 257. Um, despite all that, it was able to make it through. But I think Laura's right. This is, you know, a big question mark on where the governor stands on this. The Department of Finance had some issues with this bill earlier in the process, and we haven't really heard anything definitive from Newsom yet.
2: Yeah. And I actually found, Laura, maybe it was your colleague, Jeremy, who wrote this part in one
6: of your previous, that essentially,
2: yeah, it was softened. I know. Hundreds, hundreds. Uh, It was softened by essentially saying the Oversight Council wouldn't have a subpoena power itself and that proposed regulations would have to be submitted to the legislature. They wouldn't actually make the policy. So a little different. Um. I want to read a comment from Lou, which is about a different union uh, bill, if somebody wants to jump in on this. Can we talk about the bill to let farm workers vote by mail in union elections? It's supported by UFW, but uh, Lou thinks the governor doesn't seem to want to sign it, and why not? Has anyone been following this one?
3: A little bit. Um, I would agree with Lou that the governor does not want to seem to sign this. Uh, He rarely speaks up about bills before they make it to his desk but his one of his um uh, one of his spokespeople actually put out a statement uh last week basically laying out all their concerns with this bill which would try and uh help union uh unions organize on farms uh, by creating a system of mail-in ballots for union elections um Uh, this is sort of responding to some Supreme Court, recent Supreme Court rulings that have made it so that, um, you know, farmers can keep union organizers off their property. And um, he's raised concerns about, you know, implementing this kind of system without any kind of security, uh, you know, guarantees in place about, you know, how those elections would play out. And so, um. despite this very big effort, um, there are supporters of this bill that marched hundreds of miles up through the Central Valley to Sacramento, and they're holding a 24-hour vigil right now outside the Capitol waiting for the bill's fate. Um, it seems more likely than not that he'll probably veto it.
2: It's so interesting, too, because I think that there's been a lot of conversation, Guy, about sort of how Newsom is not just thinking about what's happening here in California, but his own sort of broader political ambitions. Uh, I mean, what are your thoughts on that guy? Do you think that that's the framework that the governor is viewing a lot of this through is whether he wants to run for president in the future or is it more, you know, I don't know. What do you think?
6: Well, I mean, I think that's always a framework for every governor deciding on any controversial bill is the political side of it. I think this obviously the conversation has turned to 2024 for Newsom, but there's always a political element in governors deciding on these bills. And when you're at that level of government, when you're running the state of California, you're always having an eye on what's next. What's your next uh, gig going to be? So I don't think that's anything unique for Newsom that, you know, he has there's political implications to the decisions that he's making on these bills. I think you could make that case for probably most people who have run the state in the past.
2: So you're saying we shouldn't be surprised that politicians are worried about (laughs) politics, I guess. (laughs) Um, all right. You are listening to Forum. I am Marisa Lagos in for Mina Kim we are talking about all of the laws or potential laws that are sitting on Governor Gavin Newsom's desk today uh, with Guy Marzarati from KQED, Alexi Casa from CalMatters, and Lara Corti from Politico. And I want to talk about one of the governor's other big priorities this year, which did make it through to his desk, which is care courts. Uh, This is a controversial but an ambitious proposal to essentially give uh, courts more power to... Well, Lexi, why don't you describe? It? <laughs> it's a it, it's it, complex. Yeah. yeah, I
3: mean, it would really um, it would try and reshape how the state handles thousands, potentially thousands of people in California who are, you know, uh, dealing with mental illness, potentially unable to take care of themselves, maybe even a danger to themselves or others, and um, homeless or cycling in and out of the criminal justice system. And um, a lot of times, you know, we're dealing with those people in a criminal capacity, or we just don't have tools to help them short of an entire conservatorship that would put their lives entirely under the control of other people. And so the governor wants to create this alternative court system where family members or law enforcement could essentially petition to have the court require them to go through some kind of treatment plan. And um, this is, you know, short of a conservatorship, but has still raised some concerns from civil liberty and homeless advocates that, you know, it's still restricting people's freedom. So there's been a balance here of, you know, how do you get help to the people who need it the most and really, you know, kind of potentially even force it on them if if they are not in the right headspace to to do it for themselves? And is that is that just? Is it ethical? Um, but, you know, I think people are so fed up with how bad the uh, homelessness situation has gotten in California, that they were willing to go along with something like this quite overwhelmingly.
2: Yeah. And I mean, Laura, I'm sure you watched this debate as well. I'm just curious, like what, if any, opposition did this face in the legislature? Because I know, um, you know, to Alexi's point that, that this is not full conservatorship, but in the past there's been a lot of concerns that have influenced how lawmakers view this type of thing.
4: Yeah. You know... I, there were concerns that were brought up like early in committee meetings, which were, you know, can the counties really do this? Is this going to infringe upon um, civil rights? The ACLU had a big concern about that. But um, I think that ultimately, they're, they're facing the same kind of um, lawmakers are facing the same kind of pressures that Newsom is, which is, you know, to do something about this homelessness issue. Um, It's becoming more and more, uh, you know, visible on California streets. And to be very clear, this, you know, targets uh, people with severe mental health issues. I think we've all seen, you know, people standing on the streets who clearly aren't, in, you know, control of their facilities, um, who are clearly confused. And I think that's the people that they're trying to help with this. But, um, you know, estimates, estimates show that it could be maybe between 7,000 and 12,000 people. And that's, you know, relatively small compared to the 160,000 homeless people who are in the state. Um, And so this is, I mean, it's, it's taking, Uh, it's trying to take a chunk out of one of the most visible. And I think we can all agree like heartbreaking aspects of the homelessness issue, Mm -hmm. which is why people are, uh, or lawmakers got behind it. Right. They understand that this is something that um, could, you know, is, is an act of compassion. Uh, That's the way that supporters framed it. But in terms of how it helps the overall problem, I mean, advocates will say what we need is more housing. What we need is more, uh, affordability. What we need is more money for services in the county. And this bill does provide some money for, for counties. But um, there's just a lot of unanswered questions. This is not really a system that's been tried in other places. So uh, I think the ultimate success of it will, you know, being able to judge that will take quite a few years.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Guy already about a minute left. What are your thoughts on this care court thing? What are you going to be watching in terms of implementation? Because as both Alexi and Laura said, a lot of this is on counties and the yeah. court system to do something really very new.
6: Yeah, I mean, I think, look, you couldn't have had a greater indictment of the current system than just the vote counts that you saw for this bill in committee. It went through seven or eight committees with just one no vote. Um, so I think an acknowledgement all around that the current system isn't working. I think for as much as been talked about of the accountability and the compelling people into care, I think the real controversial part of this bill going forward is compelling counties to provide this kind of care. Um, that was a big holdup in making sure that you know counties had the housing and particularly the mental health staffing. I mean, we see a shortage of mental health workers right. in private care as well. I think that's going to be a big piece of this is how that workforce uh, scales up to meet this need. But clearly, like, you know, to have this kind of overhaul of the way that the state deals with the severely mentally ill in such a bipartisan Uh, you know, large margins of votes, I think, just speaks to how broken the system is at this point.
2: Absolutely. We're going to have to leave it there. I want to say a huge thank you to my fabulous panel, Guy Marzarati, reporter and producer here at KQED, Alexi Kossif, reporter at CalMatters, and Lara Corti, state politics reporter and Politico California playbook co-author. Thanks to all three of you. Thank you. you. Thanks, Marisa. This Hour of Forms produced by Caroline Smith and Grace Wan. Marlena Jackson Rotondo is our engagement producer, and Susan Britton is our lead producer. Our senior producer is Susan Davis. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin, Chris Hoff, and Brendan Willard. Our interns are Lulu Ralda and Paul C. Kelly Campos. Our Vice President of News is Ethan Tovin Lindsay, and our Chief Content Officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Marisa Lagos and Firmina Kim. Have a great weekend.
0: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts.